Hey, 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 it's Maria here. And it's Julio. So for today's episode, we're going to share an interview that we recorded last month in January with our very dear ITT all-star Wajahat Ali. Yeah, he is just... Great conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was such a great conversation. We get deep. We really break it down with his new book and the things we're always talking about on In the Thick, from identity, belonging... A little white supremacy because you can't have an in the thick mm-hmm. conversation without white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And the hope we have, right? All of us, we still have hope in American democracy, which is still a thing for me. We were hopeful, I think, when we recorded this in January because it was kind of the beginning of the year. <laughs> the thing is, is that the failure of bipartisanship is kind of still very present. And we talked about that. And of course, the threat of this democracy surviving. So everything we talked about with Waj, you know, was right on time. Right. And, you know, every Friday we do the sound off and we talk about all these issues and we're going to dive deep again this week. But in the meantime, enjoy this fabulous conversation that we had with I think he's our, he's like he's the one that's been on in the thick the most times. He's I Waj- think our first yeah all-star. our first all star. Wajahad Ali has been with us for six years and we love him. So here's this Go conversation. Wash. We have to build a multicultural coalition of the willing. In the book, I call it Ethnic Avengers because this death rattle of white supremacy is coming for all of us, and I refuse to go down without a fight. Hey, what's up, fam? From Futuro Media and PRX, it's In the Thick, a podcast about politics, race, and culture. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And today we have a special guest. He's part of our family, joining us from Washington, D.C., ITT All-Star, Washahat Ali. Hooray! (laughs) Columnist for the Daily Beast and author of the new book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. Wash, congratulations on your book and welcome back to the show. We missed you. Yay. Thank you. I'm still here. Remember, I'm the Tony Randall. You just forgot. I was sitting there like in the cupboard. You're like Steve Martin. He was always on like Saturday Night Live. Everyone thought he was part of the crew is only because he guest appeared so many times. Exactly. I love it. And it's just that every time that you're on, it always is a very memorable, memorable <laughs> show. Yeah. So I'm really, really thankful. And also, dear listener, remember, we're still recording remotely Dogs, cats, barking, helicopters, planes, sirens. It all can happen right here. You've been warned. (laughs) Wash, we're just really, really excited to have you on. We're going to talk about your book. And really, you're dealing with xenophobia, with racism, and also flawed healthcare, flawed judicial system, flawed immigration system, Mm. and how this is not Like I tell my students, it's not just happening out there. It's happening to us. And for you, this is very, very personal. This is touching your family. And your book is also a broad look at what it means to be American and who is seen as American. Always so complicated. And you write about that, you know, you're a California-born son of two Pakistani immigrants, but you still are told, you know, go back. Davis. Go back to where you came from. And you're like, what? Like California? Like what the hell? Which I can't afford. I'd love to if I could afford the rent. Subsidize it. Right. Yeah. So in the first chapter, you write, quote, can I be a real American when I'm not white? No matter how much fair and lovely cream I slather on my skin. The answer in 2022 is yes, but with conditions. Mm. You continue writing. I don't want conditional love. I want more from America and from my fellow Americans, end quote. And that's what you're saying. It's not about 
conditional love and we'll share our pie with you. We'll give you a little bit more. It's like, no, it's not, it's not, we don't want that, right? So there's a lot that you write about that we think about on In the Fig. And it's kind of like what I did with my own memoir, Once I Was You. So Mm. I wanted to talk a little bit about the writing process and kind of how it was, because I think of you as a friend, as a contributor, but also as a father, as a husband, as a dad, thinking everything that you've been through as a member of the media who is high profile, but who is also like all of us, you know, it's it's an up and down process. And so I'm wondering about the writing and the decision to get into some of this more personal territory. I mean, I'm asked that a lot, but yeah, it's like, you know, you didn't have to. So talk a little bit about that writing process and why you wanted to go there. No, you should be my publicist. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> I'm like, I'll just... That would be amazing. <laughs> this is my author. This is my guy. Wajahad Ali, he's here. He's fresh. <laughs> he can do anything for you. It's a new, fresh Muslim voice. <laughs> you want to learn about America, about immigration, about Chai? He's your guy. <laughs> that was amazing. No, thank you. That's a plus one there. You know, I find that universal is often found in the specific. And oftentimes, and you know this, Maria and Julio, Take away the merch, take away the masala, take away all the specifics, keep it bland. What will the mainstream say, right? That's what I've heard my entire career. Mm-hmm. Is your ethnic story palatable to the mainstream? And as we learned, Mitch McConnell let <laughs> out of the bag. He goes, you know, the African-Americans vote just like the Americans. And you're like, hmm, interesting. So this book, I think, is about loving a country that doesn't always love you back. And it's an elegy for the rest of us, right? And the only way I could write it, and the way I could write it well, was by being as honest and authentic and as personal as possible. And in our communities, which are often, I think, hazed and targeted, our elders oftentimes say, put our best foot forward. Smile with your white teeth showing. Don't air the dirty laundry. Mm. Because what will they say? Because we're already getting hazed. But I feel like the more blunt and honest and real you are, number one, you connect with people because it's real. But number two, it's a more authentic journey that shows the pain and the joy. You need both in life. And so that's why I decided I would be as honest as I could. And you guys know about the book. You read the book. I was very honest. Yeah, you opened up. I've seen that that honesty and the pain that I share about being American with conditions, specifically the stories of what happened with me and my family. It's really resonating with, wait for it, the real Americans from the heartland who are the people of the mainstream. What do you mean it's really resonating? Like, what are you hearing? That's intriguing to me. And actually, bravo. You know what's so interesting is I've had a couple of podcast interviews and the hosts, one of them was Japanese American, said, she told me on her own as she was interviewing me, by you being so specific about, you know, the story about your parents, when they came here, your parents' incarceration, you wearing husky pants, being left-handed, there was enough entry points for me where I remember when I was growing up, I stopped speaking Japanese to my mom. I said, why? Because I was in Boston. Sorry, Julio. She goes, I was in Boston. Yeah. And when I was growing up, someone said, hey, you damn Vietnamese, stop speaking Vietnamese, go back. And she's like, I'm Japanese and I'm three. The type of crap that you had to go through, the accents, you know, wanting to fit in about being mainstream. I had enough entry points through the specificity that you described that I was with you the entire way. Mm -hmm. And what they tell us oftentimes is, the people, which is a code word for white America, won't understand or appreciate what it's like eating a taco with salsa. You should talk about meatloaf instead. And I'm like, you know, meatloaf, biryani, it doesn't matter. The story is the universal story about belonging. Like, I'll give you an example real quick. Like, one of my favorite movies is Godfather. Newsflash, I ain't Sicilian. 
How is it possible I'm able to resonate with the story? Because it's a well-told story, it's specific, and it tells an American story. And that's what I'm seeing what connects with people who are listening and reading this book. Mm, thank you, Wash. What are the conditions? What are the conditions of you being an American look like? The condition is you always have to be moderate. Who knows what that means? You always have to smile your white teeth. Don't complain. Be a model minority. Get a good job. For South Asians, that means doctor, engineer, or failure. That means don't protest. That means chase whiteness, but never be white. That means be comfortable renting in the home, but never ever dare imagine yourself to be the co-owner. And the second you flex and say, you know what? I want a piece of this American pie. <laughs> you're going to get put back in your place. And I say in the book, American. Yeah. That's what my parents say, right? But you know, the thing is, the way this affects us is the following, right? And I mentioned this in the book. Because I was growing up, I never saw people who looked like me on TV. I never saw Maria. I never saw Julio. I never saw Waj. Yeah. And you grow up and you realize, first and foremost, in the streets and in school, where you're placed in the American caste system, right? You know your role real quick. And you realize, hmm, not everyone has turmeric stains on their, sh <laughs> on their shirt. Not everyone speaks Urdu like me. I'm the only brown person. You look at the billboards. Uh-huh, all the heroes are white. You look at the movies, the Hollywood movies in the 1980s. Everyone's white. And you learn to hate yourself. You hate the skin color. You hate your eyes. You hate your nose. You hate your hair color. And you try desperately to try to be this thing called white. So much so that when I came home, and I was okay. I was the one who actually loved myself. But even me, I came home one day. I was six years old. I told my mom, I'm me. I want an American name. She goes, what are you talking about? She goes, how about we change my name from Wajahat to Wilbur? And she goes, your name is Wajahat. This is the end of the discussion. Don't you love our parents, though? Because that was the same response when I said to my mom, <clears throat> can you, like, not speak Spanish when... At, like in the supermarket. Mm. And she said, Estás loca, boba. Oh, so it was like the same kind of like, no, and <laughs> let's move on. Like, that's just not, it's just like, no. Did you have an American name, Maria? Did, was that a moment for you? No, 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 no. Like, did you want one? Well, that's my whole thing about West Side Story got it, and got hearing it. Maria for the first oh, time. Like, there's like, like I, write, I write a whole chapter about that yeah. in my book, but let's move on. Your mom was like my mom, right? Because each time there was entry points where I went home and I'm like, Mama, can we eat meatloaf? My white friends eat meatloaf. I'm, I'm, I was fascinated by meatloaf growing up. I'm like, what is meat in a loaf? <laughs> and my mother was like, we are Pakistani. We do not eat meatloaf. We are eating biryani. And I'm like, but please eat, let me eat meatloaf until I eat meatloaf. And I was like, I'm very grateful I ate biryani. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I said to my mom? I said, Mom, can we please go to Disney World in Florida, please, instead of going to Mexico? And my mother slapped me upside the head. <laughs> Not, you know, just a little bop. She was like, do you understand that we go to the real life place of fantasy? It's Mexico. So That's no. That's hilarious. Your mom's hardcore. Yeah, hardcore. Mexican moms took notes from Pakistani moms. <laughs> I said this in the book, right? Because I think that's what helped me in the long run. Look, when you're growing up, you don't want to be the other, right? You want the pretty girl, Jennifer, to like you. And you want Chad and Brett to invite you to their home to eat meatloaf where you can like wear shoes in the home <laughs> and run around. <laughs> you know, like, I'm wearing shoes in the house. Yeah, I'm the Pakistani kid. I'm special. Like no one wants to be special. You want yeah. to be like the average kid. And my parents were so hardcore. Yeah that they did not teach me English growing up in the barrier, even though I was born and raised in this country. I only spoke three phrases of English when I was dropped off at Child's Hideaway Preschool. Shut up, because my mother used to say shut up. That's all I knew. Idiot, because shut up used to be followed by idiot. And then you guys are old enough. Remember the 80s, the Campbell Soup commercial, Uh-oh, spaghetti -o? Yeah, yeah. Uh-oh, spaghetti -os. Instead of saying Uh-oh, spaghetti -o, I said Uh-oh, spaghetti -o. So shut up. <laughs> Idiot, uh oh, Pasquero, token brown kid. I was also fat, 
which back in the day in the 80s, you guys remember this. There was normal and fat. So like every day was World War Three for the fat kids. We've talked about this. The husky sizes. Not to wear husky pants. Yeah, you know that. When we were at Al Jazeera at the stream, we talked about our love of, you know, growing up in tough skins and husky pants. Oh, my God. Oh, tough skins. Yeah, dude. Oh, you had a tough skin. Yeah. For those of you who don't know real quick, husky pants <laughs> was a special pants sold at Sears. Exactly. On the backside of the butt in Times New Roman font 96, it said husky. Yeah. Anyway, so Waj, in the book, you also talk about the intense pressure you felt as a college student, right? And a board member of the Muslim Student Association, right? After the 9-11 attacks when you were at UCAL Berkeley and all that anti-Muslim violence that followed. And of course, we've continued to see this pattern of generalizing members of a community. I mean, the way people view Muslims has been a thing and it continues. And, you know, I just want to point out to what happened in January earlier this year, after four people were taken hostage at a Texas synagogue, mm. anti-Muslim politicians and media figures, literally like what, within seconds of finding out who committed the crime, capitalized on the crisis almost immediately, right? Yep. Even as local leaders praise the solidarity shown between Jews and Muslims in the community. So we're going to play a clip. This is Dallas-based Rabbi Nancy Kasten speaking on Democracy Now! after the hostage incident. So let's take a listen. The minute that a friend of mine, Imam Omar Suleiman, uh, was made aware of what was going on, which was very early, it was just shortly after I found out about it, he texted my husband and me and said, is there any way that I can help? And he is a very well-known imam with a high profile and um, went actually went to Colleyville to see if he could help with the negotiators in any possible way. So, mm. you know, it's interesting because after all these acts of white violence, and you and I have discussed this, especially the uh, January 6th attempted coup, right? There's been this real reluctance to even call it what it is and this lack of accountability for those involved. So talk to us about some of these huge disparities we see in this country and how... Yeah. Uh, people react to white violence versus non-white violence. I don't know how else to phrase it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no, 20 years after 9-11, when that happened, it was just like that Groundhog's Day, right? Like how our citizenship is conditional. It was proven right there because I was asked to condemn violent acts done by a violent man I've never met. Here I am, and you guys just heard my origin story. The first chapter in the book is create your own superhero origin story because oftentimes we are the not the co-protagonists of the American narrative, we're the sidekicks or the villains or the right. laugh track or we're excised, right? So write your own story because your story is either written for you or told to you, right? And that story of this thing called Islam and Muslims and brown people in America is that we're the other, we're the invaders. After 9-11, we are the white terrorists. It's like a synonym. Muslim is terrorist. White guy is lone radical. And all the things that happened after 9-11, after 19 foreign hijackers, hijacked those planes and brought down the two towers, all of Muslims and all people who looked Muslimy were the target, right? Right. The first hate crime was of a sick man. This just shows you how like racism is so stupid. Like the first hate crime was of this innocent sick man in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And here I am at that time as a 20-year-old senior at UC Berkeley, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life. I ended up being an English major, which is translation to failure for South Asian parents. And the two towers fall down. And even though I was all the way there in Berkeley, as a son of Pakistani immigrants, I got my first hate mail. And the first hate mail that I got as a member of the Muslim Student Association is, why did you guys bring down the towers? Why do you all hate America? That's what racism has done. It flattens all of us. It essentializes us. When this happened in the synagogue, and as soon as we found out that the culprit was a British man with a Muslim name, we didn't know anything else. I got all the emails, Julio and Maria, where 
you have to condemn this violent act and you're responsible. Yeah. The evidence for why I was responsible is the following. I'm Muslim. Yeah. And freaking 10 years ago, I tweeted an article written by someone else about this lady, Afia Siddiqui, who is a Pakistani Muslim national who was convicted in a terror case in 2010, a controversial case. And this unhinged guy, who again, it shows you the stupidity and viciousness of anti-Semitism, traveled from London, took a Dallas synagogue hostage because he wanted the release of Afia Siddiqui. So because I'm Muslim, I'm not making this up. They found an article from 2013 that I tweeted about Afia Siddiqui. They're like, look, you're a terrorist sympathizer. Wow. And that's proof of how after 20 years, no matter what we do, how much you condemn, doesn't matter how hard you condemn, how fast you condemn, how much you engage in the condemnathon, how many American flags you wave, how white your teeth are, what good degree you have, you're never seen as American enough, moderate enough. Your patriotism is always held as suspect. And overnight, like we saw during Trumpism, all those brown folks who thought they were white, they were told to go back just like that. Hi, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of Latino USA. We all love great stories. And great stories are what we pride ourselves in delivering to you every week. Latino USA presents a mix of reporting on culture and politics, diverse voices, and coverage of current and emerging issues, featuring stories from the heart, stories that will make you think and maybe even inspire you. Listen to Latino USA on your favorite podcast app from PRX. It's important for us to talk about this in personal ways because this is our lives and we are human beings. Yes. But there's also like structural stuff. So listen, we're here to talk a little bit, you know, to just take this into like a structural conversation and what you're writing about because you have deep structural analysis and this impending sense of loss for the Democrats potentially coming up in Congress, potentially governorships. And the Biden administration has faced criticism for their handling of the coronavirus pandemic. We've talked about this just vacuum of leadership, the fact that many of their legislative priorities have been stalled, you know, installed by Republicans and Democrats, too, which is just like, OK, this is crazy. Yeah. So here is President Biden talking about Republican obstruction during his first press conference of 2022. That's in January. That was one year after taking office. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden has been around in politics for longer than me that I've been a journalist. So why is he surprised? I don't even know what you're talking about. You're Are you serious? I hope he's not serious because if he's serious, we're doomed. But he, but I mean, he said it right there. So what do you think, Waj, that Democrats need to do yeah, give us the roadmap if you think there is one between now and the midterms to figure this shit out. You know what? I hate saying this, but this is like the chickens coming home to roost because Democrats have often relied upon black and brown votes and used us as tokens. And when they get in power, they put a second, abandon our priorities to chase Chad and Travis and Karen and Amy in the Rust Belt, that moderate white voter who's abandoned them since the 50s, right? That's America. That's white supremacy. And Democratic Party as part and parcel of it. Let's be honest, even with Joe Biden and Bill Clinton in their past, right? Remember that? The sister soldier moment. This is a deep cut for you young kids, but <laughs> Bill Clinton wears his shades and plays a saxophone in Arsenio Hall and 
tries to grab the urban vote. But then what does he also do? Wags his finger at Sister Soldier and says, we can't get anywhere in this country pointing the finger at one another across racial lines. If we do that, we're dead and they will beat us. Why as the dog whistle to the whites? And then it was Biden and Clinton, right, who passed that odious crime bill which destroyed generations, the mandatory minimums, which mm. Clinton had to apologize for. It's a beautiful microcosm, right? Even even with Biden's presidency, who gave him the presidency? Black and brown voters who, during a pandemic, braved insane conditions such as in Georgia and Wisconsin and other places, risk coronavirus to get him into office. And then as soon as they get into office, they're like, all right, darkies, we're going to put immigration reform, policing reform, and voting reform second. Yeah. Because it's too scary. And any problem that happens, we're going to blame the squad. And now we're going to blame wokeness, which is synonym for black, brown people concerns. And it's come to bite them in the ass because without voting rights, guys, will Democrats have a chance in the midterms? No. You're absolutely right. I think what we're seeing is that there's going to be a Republican control of the Senate and the House. Mm -hmm. That feels inevitable. I also think structurally we're doomed because Democrats bring a pencil to a knife fight, Republicans bring a bazooka. And we've talked about it on the show before. I feel like we're witnessing the death rattle of white supremacy that has become a death march. And they're going all in. And you need people to fight for democracy like black and brown people have fought for it. But they often don't because they think, and I think it's mostly due to whiteness, I'll be okay. This doesn't concern me. Until it does. Also, I think, Waj, I think that white folks feel like they... Like, they got it. Like, oh, no, we got this. And it's like, no, you don't. There you go. And that's why the whole conversation around solidarity is an action. Yeah. It's a verb. You actually have to make it. And you have to put yourself into places of discomfort and figure it out because it's actually sacrificing something. And I think that that's, yeah. that's what's been a little bit challenging is that they're like, no, we got this. We are on your side. And it's like, no, you don't understand. Yeah. No, look at Virginia, right? I'm in Virginia right now. Look what happened. The suburban parents, I called it. I said, they're going to go for Yunkin. He does a dog whistle. He scares enough white parents, majority of white women, enough even people of color in the suburbs who chased whiteness and said, listen, we're going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. Your kid has to read a book <laughs> by black and brown folks and talk about diversity. And you might even learn about transgenders. And these parents are like, nope, nope, that's that. Nope, nope. We're going to go for Yunkin instead. And now Yunkin's in. And what's the first thing they did? We're going to ban masks and vaccines. And so the lesson is, a lot of white parents, and I'm sorry to be so blunt, would rather their kid get COVID than read a book written by a black person talking about diversity. Okay, let's take a moment there because I think that just broke down what 2022 is all about. Be an American. Be free. Oh, be free. And it's like, okay, yeah, I know. freedom. Yeah. So listen, Waj, speaking about your book, you also have this recurring theme to this idea of investing in hope, which is something that you say that your daughter taught you, mm. right? And you write, and I'm quoting, like many great works of theater, I believe America is simultaneously a riotous comedy and a heartbreaking tragedy. Our fatal flaw is racism. It haunts us every day. Thankfully, our last act is unwritten, end quote. But we're now two years into the COVID pandemic, and we actually remember when you and your wife were on the show with Maria and myself, at the beginning of it all to help us make sense of it. Mm. And we want to play a clip of the conversation with you that we had in March of 2020. So let's take a listen. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't know if I'm you know, going to get money. We don't know if we're going to go back to work. But our child is alive. 
Mm. Uh, our kids are running around being goofy and smiling. Right. Khadija is with us. We're together and we're happy. And if we lose everything else, at least we have that and that's enough. Mm. So beautiful words. I'm, I'm glad we have that recorded. But this pandemic has actually put a spotlight on entrenched racism, white supremacy and inequalities that are part of this country's foundation. Mm. So instead of despairing, you suggest we fight back against whiteness and extremism through coalition building and solidarity. Tell us about how you've been able to maintain hope and what that kind of solidarity-based work would look like. Yeah, you know, look, we're alive. We're alive in a time where 900,000 Americans have died and 5 million people have died. So I would say survival is victory, number one, for those who are listening. And I have to be grateful for that. Also, this virus has flattened us, but flattened us unequally. And like you said, I think it's been a beautiful x-ray of America. It's shown us everything so clearly. The structural inequalities, the racism, the elitism, the fact that billionaires made billions, the fact that those who are black and brown the reason why they're not getting access to healthcare is because we haven't invested in them, right? It's just like the good and the bad and the ugly of America have been shown clear, whether you choose to see it or not. Yeah. Someone asked me, you know, how do you have hope in hopeless times? And what I said was, this is just three small recommendations, whether or not they're helpful for the listeners. Okay. There's a great saying, and there's a chapter in the book called, yeah, have faith in God, but tie your camel first. And it's a Muslim saying that says, you have to do everything within your power to just control what you can in life, and then you have to let it go. And I feel like while some of us feel so adrift as we're trying to survive in this situation that we can't control, every day, just do something with your hands that you can control that gives you a sense of autonomy and purpose, right? Do what you can, then let it go. And in that way, I think you feel like, okay, I have a small piece on this island that I can control where my two feet are on the ground, whether it's I do a chore, I hang out with my kids or I do work or I do the podcast. This is me at this moment. Buy a Lego set. Yeah, I build my Lego set. Yeah. I feel control. Number two, I would say is invest in joy. And you have to really invest in joy like an exercise. Like you have to be disciplined and you have to build a muscle and flex it. And I think a lot of people of color, they don't do that, right? Like when we were growing up, and this is why I like these young kids, we never talked about self-help and self-care. Like the post 9-11 generation was like survive and become a martyr. Like our success was martyrdom. And I don't want us to be martyrs. I want you and Maria and me to like live long, healthy lives. And I think right now you have to really invest in joy. What gives you joy in every day, even if it's like a fleeting moment, seize it, grab it, especially if you're a person of color, take it, you deserve it. And the third thing I would say, final thing I would say is invest in the narrative of hope because the alternative is apathy and cynicism right? Yeah. And so I understand that it's painful to invest in hope because it means opening yourself up to the possibility of pain, disappointment. That's what it is, right? Like even hoping in America, guys, is this country will betray me. Mm -hmm. That's like, you see so many people of color right now, like, what's the point? I voted in Georgia. I friggin' did everything I could. And they still told me to go back. They still didn't do voting rights. They still put me second, which goes to your last point is we have to build a multicultural coalition of the willing in the book I call it the Ethnic Avengers. Because this death rattle of white supremacy is coming for all of us. And I refuse to go down without a fight. And I'm not going to tell my kids, oh, your Baba just gave up and your inheritance now is to suffer. So be a good victim. I still think it ain't over. And being the son of immigrants, I saw my parents go through a lot of shit. And, you know, when it was really dark in our life and painful, you thought the story was over. The page turns and brings with it like a plot twist. So I'm still hoping for the plot twist, but. You know, MLK's birth passed and they love that quote, the arc of the universe bends towards justice. I say you got to bend it towards justice. Mm. And I need a lot more people to bend it with me. I agree with you, Waj. I think that we realize that this thing is big 
when they say, go back to where you came from, it's like, no matter where you go, we're still going to be fighting for the same thing. Like, we want life, we want democracy, we want to be seen. So, I'm sorry. Yeah, no te vayas. Exacto. You know that, right, Waj? No te vayas, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Let's teach Waj this Spanish. No te vayas means don't go. I love don't it. Don't go anywhere. And it's kind of like my catchphrase, no te vayas. Yeah. We are, we have to find that joy and hope because we're not going anywhere. And so maybe we're tired one day, but the next day we're fighting. And the next day we're tired, but the next day we're fighting. And that's what I love about you, Waj, because you bring that fight with a lot of joy that is based in real life, in family, in love for your compañera and, and respect for her and for your kids. And you teach us. No, I appreciate, you know, but I think what people need to realize is this is nothing new in America, right? Yeah. They're telling Muslims go back. But before that, well, I mean, right now, who, who are the invaders, guys? The invaders are Muslims, black folks, Latinos. Mexicans. Mexicans. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that we don't know about. That's where it all started. Americans of Japanese descent who were interned just because they were Japanese. Like, this isn't Americans. Like, anyone, let me put it this way. Even like, people who think they're white, they forget their history, man. The Italians and the Irish were not considered white. Yeah. They were told to go back. Benjamin Franklin hated the Germans until they became white and they started beating up the Irish. Yeah. So I think it's something important to realize that this ugliness is part and parcel of the American story, but we don't go. We stay here and fight. And that's also part of the American story. And I wanted to connect the dots in this book. So let's move on to our final segment, which we call Binge Worthy, or What Are You Binging On? So Waj, I know that when we're writing a book, it's intense, right? It's it's like very focused. But when you finish writing a book, it's kind of like, okay, I have a little bit of time. So tell us something that has kind of stuck with you that you've been watching or reading that you've been binging on. I got on the show before it became a phenomenon. So I feel like one of the cool kids, this show called Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Oh uh, yeah. Talk about that one. Have you seen it? I've heard about it. I'm starting on it. I remember I saw it before it took off and became a phenomenon. Oh, it's it's like Lord of the Flies. Instead of a bunch of boys, it's young girls. Lost. Yeah, Lord of the Flies meets Lost with suburban middle-aged angst. <laughs> That's the show. And it's so entertaining and it has like such great acting. And like they have supernatural mixed with like a murder mystery and mixed with this flashbacks is basically what it is. It's it takes place both in 1994 it has an amazing 90s soundtrack where this high school team of girls who are like athletes, their plane crashes yeah. in this mysterious forest. They survive and you don't really know what happens, but you have a sense like some terrible shit happened, like cannibalism and whatnot. And yeah. then you fast forward to the present where they're all living and the ghosts of the past haunt the present. Damn. And like, it's really propulsive. I recommend it. I don't get paid by Showtime, but that was a good show. <laughs> All right. So what are you binging on, Julio? All right, Maria. I'm actually not going to talk about a show, but I'm binging on the new novel by Colson Whitehead called Harlem Shuffle, mm -hmm. which takes place in Harlem in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And it starts with the robbery of the Hotel Teresa mm. in Harlem in the late 50s. And you know what it is to read a book that you can just like mark and cross and look at the writing and go, damn, like Colson Whitehead is one of the greatest American authors in the history of American literature. Like he's on the same level as like, you know, Faulkner and Hemingway and Harlem Shuffle is the latest one. And it is a book about Harlem because obviously 
Maria got me hooked on Harlem because Futuro Media is in Harlem. It's just so good. Well, that's great. I'm definitely going to read that. Maria, what about you? What happened is that I ended up in the Dominican Republic and I really was trying to binge on something on television. I can't get all the channels here. And so I ended up watching... (laughs) Elena Ferranti, my brilliant friend, the HBO television series, which is amazing. It's an Italian production. Mm. And I am slow to everything. Elena Ferranti is, you know, sells all these great books about this beautiful love friendship between two little girls who become women. So after binging on my brilliant friend, the second book in this, you know, continuing series from Elena Ferranti is called The Story of a New Name. And I'm loving having a book in hand that I can carry around with me. And I'm just, I'm totally binging on it. I love it. How literary of us. I'm doing that with Station Eleven. I I mean, since you guys mentioned a book, I got to say that. Yeah, Station Eleven. I saw the show on HBO. That was lovely. I think people should watch it. I love that. So you see that from television to book. Okay, great. Listen, all around fabulous American and human being, Wajahat Ali, who's also a columnist for The Daily Beast, author of the new book, Go Back to Where You Came From. It's always great having you on with the fam. Thank you so much, Waj, for joining Julio and me on this episode of In the Thick. Thank you. And and I'm going to hire you as my publicist. So I- <laughs> That's going to happen. Well, you know, I'm Mexican, so I never say no to work. So don't even, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And remember, dear listener, you can go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really helps us. You can listen to In The Thick wherever you get your podcasts on. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends and family to listen. In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Harsha Nahata, Lisa Salinas, and our fellow Sarah Hershander with editorial support from Charlotte Mansion. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Gabriela Baez. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Thanks to Raul Perez for recording me. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional, Kept, and ZZK Records. See you on our next episode, dear listener. Have a good one. No te vayas. Bye. <laughs> Quédense. Stay. <laughs> Bye, y'all. We do want to get the moms together. We'll have to include your mom. That's hilarious. We have to do an ITT mom show eventually. Come on. That has to happen. I also like how all our moms are the same because if like my, I was producing this, they would like listen to it and like rank it and be like, <laughs> not bad. Pretty good. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees. Thank you.